The following message is from Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. Continuing on with this uh, brief series called Growing Together, which is really highlighting our launch of our life group's ministry. And so this is the third message. I decided actually at the very end of October, I'm going to preach a fourth message on discipling one another. But today's topic is on widening your rings. So join me uh, with a word of prayer for that, okay? God, we uh, pray that you would continue to open our eyes to see what is the nature of the community that you are building uh, through the church. Give us not only eyes to see and recognize that, but a heart of willingness to fully participate in that vision, that we would be ones who, like Jesus himself, uh, open our arms wide to receive others and to include them into uh, our uh, ring of friendship. And so we just pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, This title, Widening Your Ring, may seem kind of confusing. It it's the kind of thing that maybe you think you do when you be, become middle-aged and gain a few pounds and your wedding ring doesn't fit anymore or something like that. It's, it's not that kind of widening your ring. Um, in an essay entitled The Inner Ring, C.S. Lewis actually wrote about this tendency that all of us have of forming these exclusive groups around ourselves, what he calls inner rings. That, and we are all so desperate to try to get into these rings and so terrified of being excluded from them. And he writes in this essay, but you have met the phenomenon of an inner ring. Perhaps you discovered that within the ring, there was a ring yet more inner. You are beginning, in fact, to pierce through the skins of the onion. One of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside. Of all passions, the passion for the inner ring is most skillful in making a man who is not yet a very bad man do very bad things. You yourself, once you are in, want to make it hard for the next entrant, just as those who are already in made it hard for you. There'd be no fun if there were no outsiders. The invisible line would have no meaning unless most people were on the wrong side of it. Exclusion is not no accident. It is the essence of the inner ring. And I uh, have shared this story in the past, uh, but uh, I thought it's very fitting even to talk about it today that I, I discovered this phenomenon of the inner ring uh, when I joined the football team as a freshman in high school. It's not us playing. I, I have zero pictures of me playing, which is so sad to me. Uh, so I, that's just the stock image of a high school football game. The only reason why I even tried out for the football team my freshman year was because my best friend Jim was this good old boy from Texas, and he lived and breathed football, and he begged me to try out for the team with him. I really didn't have much interest, but I did it just out of friendship's sake. And during that summer training, the coach had the entire team line up at the end zone and just said, you guys are going to all may have a foot race to the other end zone. By the time the race was over, I had uh, easily won that race uh, by a wide margin. And so somehow, with the guy who had never played football before, I became the starting running back on the team. What I didn't realize at that time, though, was that almost all the other starters on the team 
had grown up playing youth football together. And one of their best friends was this guy who they thought for sure would get that starting running back position. But I stole it from him. They weren't happy about it at all. Um, But over the course of that season, I eventually earned their respect and actually became friends with many of them. And I thought that I had made it to the inner ring of the football team. But during one of the last games of the season, I actually got a knee injury, returning a punt. punt. And I was benched, injured, for a couple of the last games. And while I was sidelined, I realized how happy some of my teammates were when their friend finally got a chance to start in that running back position. Um, And peeling back the layers of that onion, I actually realized that there was still an inner, inner ring that I wasn't a part of, that I hadn't broken into yet in that football team. And I want to ask you, have you ever felt like you were on the outside looking in? Have you ever felt excluded by a group that you desperately wanted to be accepted by? John Orberg writes, There are few joys in life like being wanted, chosen, embraced. There are few pains like being excluded, rejected, left out. It is part of our fallenness that makes us want to be in not just any group, but an exclusive group. In every society, in every school and church and workplace, there are little groups of people who are on the inside. These groups are almost never formal. No one votes on who gets in. Yet, whether or not you're a member will be reflected in subtle things, use of nicknames, inside jokes, invitations to certain events. The desire to gain status by being part of a high-status inner ring is a deeply dangerous one. This desire leads us to constantly compare ourselves with others, to feel anguish when we get left out, and deeper anguish when someone close to us gets ushered in. We begin to compromise. We say something we don't really believe because we think it might make us look good to someone deeper in and higher up. We laugh at that person's jokes a little too eagerly, pretend to agree when we secretly differ, or give a compliment that is partly sincere but also partly self-serving. We get a little surge of pleasure when we think we are in a more inner ring than somebody else. Seeing others excluded makes us feel more special. This is true of all of us, isn't it? There's something so deep inside us that wants to be part of an inside circle. It's interesting, though. If you think of anyone who would be in the innermost ring of any society, of of all of life, in fact, it would be none other than God himself, wouldn't it? I mean, of all of the inner rings that would be the most exclusive, It would be the one that God is in, the one that all of us would actually desperately want to try to get into. And yet throughout the Gospels, Jesus displays this heart of including, not excluding others from his inner ring. And he goes out of his way to show special attention to those who are the most marginalized in society, the poor, the widows and orphans, the foreigners, the lepers, the prostitutes and tax collectors. 
It's an interesting story when mothers brought their children to Jesus so that they could, he could pray for them. The disciples actually got really annoyed at them because they felt like they were bothering Jesus. And so they wanted to send these little children away. In their minds, women and children were not part of Jesus' inner ring. But Jesus rebukes his disciples and says, allow the children to come to me. And then he prayed for them before sending them off. I think the inner ring was on full display in another story about this Gentile woman who reached out to Jesus desperate for help for her daughter. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 21 to 28, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. It's important to understand that the Jews hated the people in this region of Tyre and Sidon. To help the Jews understand how severe the judgment would be for those who rejected him, Jesus actually used Tyre and Sidon as a point of comparison to say that these cities are going to come out better on the judgment day than you. Why? He makes that comparison because the Jews were certain that the citizens of Tyre and Sidon were going to receive the harshest punishment possible from God. And so this woman who comes to Jesus asking for help comes from among these hated people. She cries out to Jesus for mercy for her demon-possessed daughter. What's interesting is that Jesus responds to her pleas with silence. And he does it because he is testing his disciples. And in this long, awkward silence, the disciples must have been sitting there trying to figure out what was going on here and trying to read Jesus' mind and trying to read the room. And they read it all wrong because they assume that like any other Jew, Jesus must have hated this woman and not wanted her there. And so they say what they think Jesus wants to hear and say, Let's get rid of her. She's bothering you, isn't she? Send her away. And actually, when Jesus speaks up, it seems to affirm the disciples' suspicion that this woman is not worthy of being in this inner ring. Verse 24, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came up and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Rather than rejecting this woman, Jesus is now testing her faith to see if she understands the heart of God unlike his own disciples. And it shows that she actually passes the test with flying colors and reveals that she knows God's heart better than his own disciples. Verse 28, then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. And throughout the Gospels, we see this consistent heart of Jesus welcoming everyone into his kingdom and making special effort to reach out to those who were most dismissed and excluded by others and inviting them to his table. 
And so it's not surprising that as his followers, we are called to have the same heart of including others who we normally would consider outsiders into our rings of fellowship. Hebrews chapter 13, 1 to 2, it says, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. I've shared this before, but that word hospitality in the Greek is philozenia, which is a combination of two words, phileo, which means love, and xenia, which is xenos, which is stranger. So literally, hospitality means loving strangers. And it means um, extending the same love and care that we typically reserve for people only in our inner ring to those who are outside of it. You know, we tend to associate hospitality with inviting somebody over to our house for a meal, Right? But when you look at how it is used in the Bible, it's so much broader than that. What it refers to is basically come alongside someone and helping them in any way that we can when they are in need. It may be offering a meal to someone, but it also can mean offering a bed and a room for someone who needs a place to stay at night, lending them your tools to help them for a project, helping them financially when they're in a time of need and crisis. And so what the Bible says is, do this to those outside the church who are strangers, but then interestingly, it says also practice this hospitality to those within the church as well. Romans chapter 12, verse 13 says, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. And I think what this verse is exposing is the truth that even within the church, We all have our natural affinities. We have people that we would consider friends. And then we would also have people, even in the church, that we don't consider part of our inner circle. And so even in the church, we need to make a special effort to include those who are most likely to feel marginalized or excluded into our inner circle of love and care. This year, we've actually had a record number of newcomers joining our life group system. And so as a result, almost all of our life groups have a handful of new members who are pretty new to the church in them now. And this is, I think, both exciting as well as a challenge for us because the question that we need to ask is this. Will we truly welcome them into our circles of love and friendship. I think the truth is there's always this tension of intimacy and inclusivity. And it's this sense that for us to really be intimate and close with each other, there has to be a certain exclusiveness to that circle. And the more we allow people into that circle, it kind of feels like it gets diluted, doesn't it? But there's something so important about what Scripture teaches in that we ought to seek that deep level of connectedness and intimacy while still broadening and widening that ring that we allow others in to that circle. 
Um, I want to ask you, who are the ones in your life group that are the most likely to feel like strangers in your group? Because they are the ones that the Bible would argue needs your special attention. They are the ones who you need to work extra hard to welcome and include into your group. The truth is, I think we all try to keep our inner ring as small as possible, don't we? Why? Because there is a really high cost to that community. When you make a commitment like that to somebody, it's not easy to say, I will be there for you. I will help you in your time of need. And so practically, we keep that circle as small as possible. It's inconvenient to share someone else's burdens, to care for others. But I believe God is calling us to widen our rings, especially among fellow believers, fellow Christians, to extend that hand of fellowship to people that we normally would not feel any obligation to do so toward. And the question is, well, why? Why does God ask this of us? Well, I think it's because it shows to the world that unlike any other community that exists out there, the church is united around the love of God, which is supposed to break down barriers that normally divide us from one another. Because the truth is, you don't need the church to form affinity groups where you have a lot in common, and it's so easy to love one another. It's not until we go outside of those social circles and extend a hand to friendship that someone we normally would not think to become a friend with, that we show the power of the gospel to transcend those human barriers. Let me just in a very practical way apply this to our life groups in a couple of ways. The first thing that I would say is this. Look for opportunities to lean on one another for help. Listen. I know that for many of you at ICC, you do actually have these inner rings that may have nothing to do with your life groups. The truth is you are in a pretty good position in the church in the sense that you have some pretty deep and meaningful friendships, and it may not necessarily even involve those that you're doing small group with at this time. And the truth is probably those are the people that you really lean on when you need help with something. But what I am asking you to do is instead to this year learn how to lean more on your life groups for the help that you need. Maybe you need advice on purchasing something. Maybe you need to move a couch in your house. Maybe you need someone who could give a ride to one of your kids because you're just totally busy this week. What I would ask is could you maybe think about asking someone in your life group first rather than someone else. And what I would say is on the flip side, look for ways that you can include others and serve them who are in your life group. Invite them this weekend to watch uh, a Bears game or another football game with you. If someone is sick, drop off a meal. When they're on vacation, offer to watch their pets or water their flowers or check on their house. Send a text of encouragement later that week when somebody shares during a Bible study that's been a particularly difficult time for them and then pray for them. I think we have to make it a very intentional effort to truly do life with the people in our life groups. And then the second practical suggestion I would make is this. Leave margin in your life to include and care for others in your life group. 
I think it goes without saying that all of us are incredibly busy. And as a result of that busyness, the idea of widening your ring of friendship just probably stresses you out. It's not an invitation that you look upon warmly, but it's just, that's the last thing I need in my life, is to add more people in my inner ring that I feel burdened for. And I think that's a problem. If we're really going to live out this ideal of what a gospel community looks like, we need to build in some margin in our lives for some free time, some energy, and some even finances that could be used to invest in those relationships. Leave some windows in your schedule throughout the week that you can actually dedicate to reaching out to others, spending time with them. And frankly, if everyone's busy and there isn't anything specific that you can do, like bringing over a meal or watching a show together or doing a project together, then use that time to text or email them words of encouragement or praying for them. Set aside some money every month that you can use specifically to help others who may be in greater need than yourself. None of this, in other words, what I'm saying is going to really materialize unless we actually take some concrete steps to build some margin in our life to say, this is important to me. These people are important to me. And so I'm going to reserve some of my time, some of my energy, some of my finances even to investing in these relationships. I also want to say this. In order for any of this to become a reality in our church, we also need to address not only a heart of offering hospitality to others, but also learning how to receive it. Because there is a dying to self needed for us to show this love and care to others, but there is also a dying to self needed in order to be on the receiving end of it as well. And the truth is many of us are not very good at that, are we? Genuine community, in other words, cannot happen where members are willing to sacrifice, to give, to building that vision and helping others, but no one has the humility enough to receive that love from others. A true gospel community is one in which members are willing to both give and receive love and care from one another. And living in suburban America in middle-class life, I don't think that's something that any of us embrace very willingly, is it? I think the truth is most of us reject the offer of help when somebody gives it to us because we don't want to be a bother to others, do we? We don't want others to be inconvenienced on our behalf. And so although someone may offer to do something for us, the truth is more often than that we say, it's okay, don't worry about me. We need the help but we don't want to receive it. And if we're really honest, I think we often decline help from others because we don't want to be indebted to them, do we? Because when somebody does something for you like that, offers you an act of kindness for free, it actually feels like it's a shadow hanging over that relationship, doesn't it? And now you feel burdened that somehow, someway, i got to repay this. Otherwise, you never feel good about that relationship going forward. It's kind of like at Christmas when somebody gives you a gift and you realize you didn't get them a gift. That's the number one thing you have to remember next Christmas is get them a gift, right? You must repay that debt. And as long as we think like this, we don't understand how love works in the kingdom of God. 
We are not going to experience genuine gospel community if this is our mentality of tit for tat. And we are not willing to let others actually love us freely as an act of grace. I think we can learn a lot about how love and care operates in a framework of the gospel by how Paul responded when he was given a financial gift from the Philippian church while he was in prison. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 to 19, it says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living or in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more, to be, is that more, is, is that more be credited to your account I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Now, let me say this. If you read it in a cynical way, it kind of sounds like Paul is putting down or minimizing the gift that the Philippians just gave him. It's like he's saying, thanks, but I didn't really need it. It's like he's saying, um, I was fine without it. But that's not what Paul is saying. He does point out that with or without the gift, God has been teaching him how to be content in every circumstance. That he does affirm. But what he does actually is he rejoices in this gift that they gave because why? Because he's saying it shows the reality of God's love in you. And what you don't see any hint of is any sense of indebtedness that Paul feels like, don't worry guys, one day I promise I will repay this kindness with another act of kindness back to you. He doesn't feel any of that obligation, but there is just the freedom in celebrating this gift and saying what I'm so happy about is how this shows God's love is real in you and how God will reward you one day according to his riches of kindness toward all his people. And he's rejoicing in the fact that God is being glorified and honored through the way that Christians are loving each other and supporting each other. That is what the sharing of love and care in the church ought to look like. Not tit for tat. Not, you did this for me, don't worry, I'll keep a record of it. And one day I'll be sure to do something for you. It's just because of everything that God has done for me, my heart is so full and overwhelmed that I can't help but share that love with others without keeping records, without keeping track of who did what for me. I give this freely because of what God has freely given to me. And that is my sincere desire this year as we launch life groups 
here at ICC, is that we will experience that kind of caregiving love, that kind of inclusion of bringing people into that innermost circle that you normally reserve only for your closest friends in terms of a sense of a debt of love, of wanting to do good to them. I pray that we will experience the reality of that love in our life groups. I want to just uh, close with a story here that I think illustrates what I'm sharing really powerfully. I don't know if many of you guys know who this is, um, but Jonathan Jarks is a senior writer for The Ringer, which is a sports website and also a podcast network. Jarks' father was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease when he was only 12 years old. And uh, if you know anything about Parkinson's, it's a pretty brutal disease. It slowly, you, you slowly degenerate over years until it finally takes your life. And what Jarks says is that at first, everyone was so supportive of his father and their family when they first got the diagnosis. They were bringing food over, and they were driving him to places. But what Jarks says is that over the years, as his father's condition deteriorated and he grew sicker and sicker, all of those family friends just disappeared. And by the end of his father's life, no one was around anymore except the home health nurses. Then finally, his father passed away after nine years of his battle with Parkinson's. And what Jarks writes is this, They all told me how sorry they were and asked whether there was anything they could do. All I could think was, I don't know any of you. I know of you. I've heard your names, but I don't know you. And what he was wondering at that funeral was, where were you all those years when I actually needed someone, when I needed you? Where were you when my father needed you? Well, the tragic story, as it continues, is that Jarks himself became seriously ill just last year. And for months, the doctors were working off this belief that he had long COVID. But he wasn't getting any better, and after months of more searching for an actual diagnosis, they realized that he had a rare and terminal cancer. Jarks was only 33 years old. He was married and had a two-year-old son named Jackson. And when he realized that he was not going to ever conquer this cancer, he was determined that his son Jackson would not experience the same fate that he did when his father was slowly dying of Parkinson's. He was determined to make sure that although his son would grow up without him, he would be surrounded by a community that loved and cared for him. Jarks actually became a believer later in life, post-college. And in this past year, he has written very openly about his faith and how it has played such an important role during his battle with cancer. 
especially when he made the decision to join a life group in his church. And I want to close my message today by reading an extended excerpt from an article that Jarks wrote back in March entitled, Does My Son Know You? Not long after becoming a Christian, he joined a church and then he attended his first life group meeting and he writes about that experience. I was nervous the first time I went to a life group. I had joined a church the week before and one of the pastors, a guy a few years older than me, invited me. It was a smaller group of people who met at his house every week. I remember walking up to the door and not knowing what to expect on the other side. There were about a dozen people in the living room talking to each other. I didn't know any of them besides the pastor, and I barely knew him. I didn't know what to do, so I did what most people would do. I headed over to the table with snacks. Eventually, the chatter died down, and everyone sat in a circle in the living room. They all introduced themselves with an icebreaker. They sang a few songs and then talked about the Bible for a while. At the end of the meeting, everyone paired off to pray for each other, and the pastor asked me what I thought of the group. Then he asked if I would come back. I said, I guess, but I wasn't sure. That was seven years ago. Some of those strangers from the house that first night are now some of my closest friends. It didn't happen overnight. It took me a long time to feel comfortable. I usually came after the life group had already started and left as soon as it was over. But I was seeing the same people every week, and I was telling them about my problems, and they were telling me about theirs. Do that for long enough and you become friends. You get to know enough people that way and life group goes from being an obligation to something you look forward to. Making the commitment to come every week is still hard. There are always other things to do. Sometimes you are tired or you had a long day or you just don't feel like it. It gets even harder once you get married and have kids. Nor are the people always easy to deal with. You may not have a lot in common. You have to search for things to talk about. You can be vulnerable with people and they don't always respond how you would expect. And you certainly won't always agree with them on how they see the world. The past few years haven't been easy. Our life group met over Zoom for a while. People ask me whether I have to be more careful because of my condition and the pandemic. But it's really the opposite. I don't have the luxury of waiting for life to get back to normal. This might be the only time I have. I can't imagine not being in a life group at this point. Human beings aren't supposed to go through life as faces in a crowd. People talk a lot about medical insurance and life insurance when you get sick. But relational insurance is far more important. I didn't need my dad's money, but I could have used some of his friends. There are some things from the Bible that I've been leaning on over the past year. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, James 1.27. Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow, Isaiah 1.17. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child, Exodus 22.22. There are hundreds of verses like that. I have already told some of my friends, when I see you in heaven, there's only one thing I'm going to ask. Were you good to my son and my wife? Were you there for them? Does my son know you? I don't want Jackson to have the same childhood that I did. 
I want him to wonder why his dad's friends always came over and shot hoops with him. Why they always invited him to their houses. Why there are so many of them at his games. I hope that he gets sick of them. One thing I have learned from this experience is that you can't worry about things that you can't control. I can't control what will happen to me. I don't know how long I will be there for my son. All I can do is make the most of the time I have left. That means investing in other people so they can be there for him. Two Saturdays ago, Jarks passed away. And his son is now an orphaned, child fatherless, and his wife is a widow. But the hope that Jarks left on this earth was a hope of a gospel community that would take care of his wife and son now that he is no longer able to. And I believe that hope is the hope that God gives to us in the gospel through the church of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you.